Over the last few decades, it, is ha- it has become uh, practice in the churches uh, across the world to also uh, remember the passion of Jesus, knowing that many people uh, go from Palm Sunday uh, to Easter Sunday and miss uh, the, the death of Jesus that is remembered on uh, services Thursday and Friday, which we have at 7. So we do this morning move forward into the moments immediately following the death of Jesus. This is the 27th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 51. After Jesus has died, it says, At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to, um, top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. After Jesus' resurrection, they came out of their tombs and went into the holy city and appeared To many people. When the centurion and the guards who were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and everything that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he is the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. As I mentioned last week, uh, we have a wedding coming up in our family in a few weeks, and so wedding presents are delivered to our house almost uh, daily. And I've noticed that the normal practice of the people delivering, whether they're UPS or, or FedEx or whatever delivery service, is they come up and uh, ring the doorbell drop the package, and hurry off as fast as they can, as if I uh, came out and saw them, they might turn back into a pumpkin. And I thought about the way they arrive and announce their arrival. And I thought about uh, other people, how they arrive at our house. My younger brother, what he does when he arrives is he knocks and then he just walks in. My older children just walk in. Our neighbors, though, And others who come to the door will ring the doorbell and they'll wait for us to come and open the door. I wondered, how would God arrive? How would God signal God's arrival? I tend to think that God would probably ring or knock and then wait. I get that picture, of course, uh, from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we get the sense that Jesus waits for us to, to open that door. And I think of the humility of God. God not normally forcing God's own self upon us, but letting us choose. But that's what's so fascinating to me when we come to this moment. at the death of Jesus. God arrives And instead of knocking on the door, he knocks out the door and takes the walls down with it. We see three amazing signs recorded in Matthew. The curtain temple is torn from top to bottom. The uh, rocks begin to split in an earthquake. 
And then the tombs of the holy ones, of the dead, the righteous dead, are opened. God makes it clear that God has shown up. It's his way of saying, I'm back. I thought it might be fun for just a few moments to look at those three signs. And by the way, Matthew's the only one that has these signs quite like this in this order. And see what they might have been saying to people. As you know... Uh, Jewish people in particular, people in the ancient world, uh, didn't think in kind of normally abstract theories and propositions and treatises. They tend to see in pictures. So in this picture of these three events, I thought it might be uh, good to look at what do we see? The first thing is this. What do you see when the curtain is torn in two? Well, the first thing is to know something about the curtain. Uh, the, The temple was a segregated place. Uh, if you were a Gentile, you could only go to a certain point and you couldn't go any further. If you were a Jew but a woman, you could only go to a certain point and then no further. If you were a man, a Jew, you could only go to a certain point then no further. If you were a priest, you could only go to a certain point and no further. And then there was this final section where only the high priest could go, and the high priest could only go there once a year. And they tied a rope and bells to the high priest's ankle in case... Something should happen to him and he has a heart attack or passes out because you can't go in there to get him. you got to pull him out. The holiest place called the Holy of Holies. And it's that curtain between the holiest place and the rest of the temple that we see torn. Interestingly, it's torn top to bottom, which tells you it's not a result of any earthquake or natural event. That God, God's very own self says, I'll take this and tears it. Interestingly, uh, when you look at this picture, there are a number of ways to interpret it. One way, I think, is very, is very clear and obvious, which is God is saying that anybody can come and be in my presence now. At the death of my son, access is open to all people. There's nothing that separates us. You may come into my presence. But I think it's also clear that God is also saying, I'm not limited to this little room here. As one commentator says, here's where God breaks loose. And God's coming out of that temple and is there to move on God's world and be with everyone. Uh, Interestingly, we're told by Josephus that on the inner, this inner sanctum, this holy of holies, the high priest can only go in. uh, No one else. Uh, There is on the wall uh, paintings of the zodiac and constellations. And apparently the 12 tribes are tied into the Zodiac on this painting. And then there's the constellations. And it was a way of reminding the high priest that what you do in here is not just limited to the Jews. What you do when you worship God in here affects the whole universe. And so what's fascinating is if that curtain is torn, people who who have the right vantage point can see and understand for the first time that God is not just the God of the Jews. But God is the God of everyone. And what goes on there doesn't stay there. It affects the whole world. And then there's this. It is also a well-known Jewish custom and practice that when you were either in mourning or repentance, one of the ways you signify it was by tearing your clothes, your garment, and then put ashes on your head. Still practiced to this day. Uh, some, uh, I've had the privilege of going with Ray Vanderland to Israel four times. And on, uh, in the first couple of times, we had a bus driver. His name was David Benstein. Uh, and on one of the trips that Ray was on, and, and fortunately I was not on this trip, uh, David Benstein had a heart attack and died on the trip, on the tour. And so it fell to Ray to break the news to David's wife 
and his sons. So he, with this entire group of people on the tour with him, show up at Benstein's door, knock on the door. Benstein's son answers, and he looks and sees Ray and all these people, and he knows it is not good news. And he says nothing. He takes his shirt immediately and rips it in half. His way of mourning and grieving the loss of his father. Well, here in the temple curtain, you get a picture of a God mourning and grieving the loss of his only son. It's a fascinating picture. But it's also a fascinating picture to watch the earthquake and the rocks split. Because on a number of occasions in, um, in, in the Old Testament, we hear about rock splitting. And any time we hear about that, we hear connected with it that God is coming and God is coming in power to judge. And so we see this in the book of Judges, chapter 5. We see it in uh, Psalm uh, 68. Uh, We also see it in the Old Testament prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6. And when it talks about this day of judgment, it talks about the rock splitting. Now, what you need to know is that judgment can be awful, A-W-E, awful, all-inspiring. But it wasn't necessarily about condemnation. The main thing judgment was about was about God putting things back right and back together. So people who didn't have enough to eat finally got enough to eat. The poor who had no one to advocate their, uh, their case in court uh, before officials finally got a generous justice. Uh, the people who were ignored now would no longer be ignored. The people separated from God by their sin and their sorrow now find themselves restored. All these things happened in a judgment day, and you knew that day had arrived when the rock split. So those Jews who watch the results of this earthquake and know their scripture know that at the death of Jesus, God is starting to set the world back the way it's supposed to be. God is making a big move toward restoring a generous justice and grace to all people. And they would have seen that. And then perhaps, to my mind, the most fascinating one of all, some tombs open and some righteous or holy ones, holy people, have their tombs open. And then on the day of resurrection, after Jesus uh, is resurrected, then they come out of the tombs and they appear to people in the city of Jerusalem. That's amazing. But not completely unanticipated. A number of, uh, a large number of Jews in Jesus' day were anticipating resurrection. You could find hints of this in Ezekiel chapter 37 when the dry bones come together and, and life uh, is breathed into the dead. You could see this in Daniel, the prophet, chapter 12, verse 2. You could see it in Zechariah. Uh, and you could see this sense that when God is doing something big, part of what God is doing is bringing resurrection and bringing people back to life. And there's a book that's not in the Jewish Bible. It's not in, in uh, most Protestant Bibles. It's called Baruch. B-A-R-U-C-H. Baruch is is known in the Old Testament because he was Jeremiah's uh, personal assistant, his scribe, uh, uh, the one he dictated to. And there's a book called Second Baruch that's probably being compiled during Jesus' day but not written until shortly thereafter. But it has this fascinating verse in chapter 50. It says that the righteous people will rise from the dead as a witness to the wicked. It was a way of showing people who were distant from God, that God was real and God was alive and God was moving, and we're going to show them that when these holy people come back to life. Now, inquiring minds want to know what happened to them after they came back to life. You know, I was kind of curious about that. 
Uh, and there are a number of, I guess, possibilities. One is, uh, is that these, uh, these people came out of their tomb and, and a little bit like Groundhog Day, you know, they came out and showed themselves. And then after Jesus' resurrection, they went back into the tomb from whence they'd come. I, I suppose that's possible, though I've got to tell you, if I had been released from the tomb, it had been really hard to get me back in there. Another possibility is that, well, they got out of the tomb and they just resumed their normal life until they died. And then they went back in the tomb. Maybe. But there are a number of commentators who believe that what happened was, a lot like Enoch in the book of Genesis and Elijah, that what happened is they came out uh, that basically when God was finished using them, God just took them up to be with God. Since going back in the tomb might have been too much to ask of them. I don't know what happened. But I do know that anybody who saw them would have immediately known what conclusions to draw. God was doing something really huge in the death of Jesus that was affecting all creation, not just rocks and tombs and temples, but people living and dead. The scope of what God does in the, in the uh, crucifixion can, cannot be measured. And they would have known this. If I can just um, uh, kind of take it uh, maybe down or aside a notch. It reminds me a little bit of the movie Ghostbusters. Do you remember the first Ghostbusters years ago? So there's all this uh, supernatural activity that's going on, but the city officials and other officials, they really don't believe it. But then you remember one of the things that happens is they get a phone call to the police chief and he reports that the port has called in and the Titanic has arrived. And then they know, man, this is different. Well, I assure you, when these holy ones are walking around town, they know that something has happened in the death of Jesus, and it was really, really big. And I think it was so big it was remembered for quite some time. This is very interesting to me. Uh, The Jews would revolt against uh, the Romans 40 years after Jesus. Even though on Palm Sunday, Jesus warned them about doing this. He said, don't do it. You don't know what makes for peace, and and it's going to be bad. Uh, But they did it anyway. Uh, But one of the things that happened is a Roman emperor named Vespasian came then to Israel. And uh, from 66 to 70 A.D., they put down the the Jewish revolution. They tore down the temple uh, brick by rock by rock um, and and scattered the Jews uh, many places. But uh, one of the things that was interesting is Vespasian ended up being called back to Rome and he became the emperor. So he left his son, a guy named Titus, in charge of the mop-up operations to kind of go out to uh, uh, Masada and then clean up these pockets of resistance. And when Titus finally comes back, having conquered all of Israel, including Jerusalem, and has this victory march, one of the things apparently the people noticed is Titus is missing a lot of people from his 10th legion. Did we lose that many people in the battle to these Jews? And so Titus has to admit, and this is fascinating, that no, he had to leave a large number of his soldiers of his 10th legion behind. And what they were doing, they're guarding the tombs on the Mount of Olives, lest this thing happen again. He left them behind in case the dead walk out again, but it's got to be handled. He knew it had happened once, apparently. And he was waiting for when it might happen again. 
what you see in this amazing arrival of God is signs that were so obvious that every Jew could see them and signs that were so obvious that the Romans could see them too, including the centurion. When he watched everything, including the, in, uh, the earthquake, the centurion and his um, uh, guards accompanying him, watching Jesus on the cross say, surely this man is the son of God. They know what has happened. They figured it out. And I guess the question is for us today, two millennia later, do we know what happened there? Have we figured out what it means? Have we read the signs? Uh, One of the people meeting in our pastor's group this week, um, one of our worship leaders, Matt Dixon, was talking about a rock that is in a park in the Pacific Northwest. And when I looked it up, I found that it's actually in a number of places, most famously in the U.K., and it's called a weatherstone. Have you ever heard of weatherstone? So it's in a park, an area, and it's usually a a big rock, a big stone or a boulder like this attached to a chain or a very strong rope. And and you use it to tell the weather. And so uh, the one I saw had this sign, this plaque next to this uh, this stone on a chain. And this is what it says. You can tell the weather by this rock. If the rock is wet, it is raining. If it is dry, it is not raining. If you see the rock shadow, it is sunny. If you cannot see the rock, it is foggy. If the rock is white on top, it is snowing. If the rock is swinging back and forth, it is windy. If the rock is bouncing up and down, there's an earthquake. If the rock is missing from this chain, there's been a tornado. And if the rock is underwater, there's a flood. And then it says in parentheses, but don't worry, the pub is still open. Well, when you see this, the temple split, the curtains, the rocks split, the tombs open, people running around. Where do you go? What do you do? And the pub is a good option. Because you figured out something really big is going on. But it's not the best option. The best option is the Palm Sunday option. Which is to know that God is coming and has entered. And we best welcome God. And look for what God is going to do. Not just today. Or on that day. But in the future days. Including our day. You see there's a difference. UPS guy, he comes, he leaves. My brother, he comes in, stays while he leaves. My children come, they stay for a weekend. They leave. But God, God rolls into town on that Friday. And he stays. 